You're dialed in to the Cut Banks Conversation, a podcast on hunting, fishing, and conservation in British Columbia. Well, hey there, hi there, ho there, and here we all are, episode number 11. I believe so, uh, yeah. Episode number 11, we are moving along. We've had uh, we've had some pretty good ones, some controversial ones. I don't know if this one was going to be controversial, but it's certainly going to be interesting. So, uh, but first, let's round up everybody's long weekend. What was happening? Dustin, I saw a fish. Did I see fish? <laughs> I did, saw, you I did saw see waterfalls. Fish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was nice. We had some beautiful weather. I got the kids out uh, fishing a couple times and uh, sat in the rain a little bit. But yeah, I got out to some waterfalls and just... Soaked it in, did a little bit of berry picking, and were you out in uh, Kittle Falls? Yes, yeah. You guys yeah. just were you? Did you did you go up and down the sandy quite a bit, or did you uh, just out to not, the falls? Not too much, just to the falls and back, and then we went out another day to uh, to Grizzly Lake, took the kids fishing, and then there's a pretty good huckleberry patch out there that that we were a little early for, but we still got some. We still got some. I dig <laughs> yeah. it, Stevie. You pretty much the same thing as Dustin. We we went fishing, caught some, uh, well, drowned some worms, caught a couple fish, picked some berries, and. Uh, Made some pretty kick-ass fireweed jelly. I did have some of that this morning. And yes, I did. It, was, you think? it was freaking awesome. Isn't Nicely it? done. Now you've uh, that's a new pair. That's a new project for me. <laughs> uh, I got a chance to. I turned fifty-three this uh, this weekend, so we ran out to Jasper for a day hike. And uh, <laughs> we're. It's funny we're talking about wildlife collision because I took a massive raven right through the grill, and I need a new grill. I almost needed a new rad. So yeah. Yeah, that swooped right across the highway. So other than the $460 grill, it was a really good trip to Jasper. And uh, yesterday I did uh, I did a couple things. Dustin, I haven't broken the news to you yet, but uh, <laughs> I'm the registered drone pilot for Spruce City. So I was doing a little practice flying yesterday. Oh, no. I had a couple of really good flights. <laughs> I had one not so good flight. <laughs> and I did get the video. So uh, I will edit that down so you can see the moment of truth and we can look back at the black box. And The, f- uh, the flight was not so good. What about the landing? That's no, the landing was tragic. So <laughs> oh, okay. we, we definitely need a new gimbal in the drone, but that was fun. So, uh, and I got a ton of Saskatoons yesterday. So my wife was very happy. She, nice segue. Just right over it. And, right over <laughs> it. Let's go to the Saskatoons. Yeah, drone crash, but the Saskatoons yeah. were great. And I had some hopeless fishing on the Salmon River, but man, what a nice weekend that we had. We, we certainly deserved it. So Matt, what'd you do? Nothing but uh, yard work and dog walks. That sounds like a pretty good weekend. All things considered. Enjoy oh, the weather. That's awesome. All right. Well, today's episode, Steve, thanks for the inspired title. Um, we got to figure out how to put planes in here because we're not going to be talking about planes. I don't think Gail and Roy came equipped to talk about planes. If we lose some emotion, we can be very plain. We can be very plain. Okay. (laughs) So episode 11 is planes, trains, and automobiles managing wildlife populations in a world with roads. So we have two special guests. Uh, that are, well, I'm going to call them experts in the field because they know better than we do. And we're going to start first with Roy Ray from uh, one of the instructors from the university. Say hello, Roy. Hello. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you are you, You're from Vanderhoof, yes? I grew up in Vanderhoof and went to high school at NVSS. Was a bit of a farm boy and, uh, you know, worked in sawmills and as a janitor and did all kinds of fun things that young teenage boys do. And then eventually... Decided to uh, go to college in California. I got a bachelor's degree in biology. Hold on. You jumped all the way. You jumped the queue and all the way to California. <laughs> all you the said way to going California. to college, but only if it can be in California. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> After living all those years in Vanderhoof and all those rainy summers in the 80s, I decided I'd better get out here for a while. So you went to Cal- California State University? California State University. And what, what, how did you pick that as your alma mater? Uh, lots of family members down there and a grandmother to live with to uh, reduce the amount of money going out uh, to uh, room uh-huh. and board. Okay, makes makes perfectly good sense. Now, I also saw, um, 
Norway? Norway? Yes. I actually, after my bachelor's, I came to UNBC after it had just opened and I did a master's in forestry and moosology and then went to Norway to do my PhD, University of uh, Life Sciences in Norway. Moosology is an is an we can call it that. <laughs> you can we can call it that. <laughs> I, I'm I, about to Google that and go. Yeah. Cool. Is that real? Yeah, is that a real thing? Moosology. All right. Technically, it's not a real thing, but uh, well, we're making it a real thing now. Let's do so it. Roy is our resident expert on moosology. Yeah, write that down. Okay, perfect. And Gail Hesse. Gail, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, folks. Uh, I originally uh, came up here in the early 1980s, uh, and I worked in the forest industry for a while in the Forest Service in Vanderhoof. So we've got quite a Vanderhoofian connection going on here. There's a big Vanderhoof connection here, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, from that, I uh, spent the last 20 years of my career working for BC Conservation Foundation in their program of wildlife collision prevention. So let's just kind of dive right into it. How... How did you pick? How did you end up in that arena? How, why, why uh, wildlife collision, and how did that become what has obviously turned into a passion project for you for the the better part of your professional career? Well, I kind of fell into it because there was a job opening. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we're hiring. <laughs> yeah, we're hiring. I actually applied for the bearware position, and uh, that one was full. And so. Um, they said, hey, we got this new program starting about wildlife collisions on the roads. And uh, we have a partner, uh, ICBC at that time was very interested in wildlife collisions. And uh, so they partnered with BC Conservation Foundation to form the Wildlife Collision Prevention Program. And that was uh, has been in operation for about 20 years. And it continues today. Uh, yes, we still have um, good working relationships with ICBC, although some of the logistics of the the uh, funding and that kind of stuff has, has changed. Has changed. So they don't have these the same uh, financial interest or commitment as they did before? When... It's different. Um, like any corporation, um, priorities change, investments um, changes. So uh, they support us in uh, different ways than they did previously. But there, the support's there. It's just it's uh, maybe not as robust as it was at the beginning. I would say that um, they support us the best way that they can. <laughs> That's a good answer. That's a really good answer. <laughs> Roy, how do you intersect with wildlife collisions? Because I know your your name is on some papers that I've uh, perused recently. So tell me a little bit about where your interest lies in that. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I did a master's degree in forestry and moose interactions. And specifically, I looked at how it is that cutting plants in brush cutting operations, when we go out and we weed all of the deciduous vegetation from yeah. forest plantations, how right. that impacts moose and moose browsing. Okay. And so what I did is I looked at how the impacts of cutting those plants at different times of the year actually results in those plants growing back with varying levels of plant quality Okay. that moose will either target or not target based on the quality. And so after I finished that master's degree, I thought, man, there's some real application of this to roadside brush cutting because we're running up and down the roadsides, cutting this brush, not really thinking too much about the time of the year in which we cut it and how that may impact the quality of the growth that comes back. And if we don't know what we're doing, we may actually be, uh, although not purposely, we may actually be attracting animals like moose into the road corridor to forage on the stuff that's growing back after brush cutting. And then when they're moving back and forth across the road, 
to get to that vegetation, they're coming in contact with vehicles. And so I took what I had done for a master's project and kind of morphed that into some research after my master's. So is this, I'm going to really dumb this down, but is this for, for wildlife, uh, when you look at uh, how we maintain the, the ditches and the easements, is it like the smell of a fresh cut lawn to them? Is it like it's go time? <laughs> like, I mean, it's like, man, that smells like a buffet and I've got to get some of that. Is that, is that what happens in that? Well, or is it just it just creates a, a space where it's younger uh, growth that is I'm assuming there's a different kind of nutrient composition in the in the in the younger growth that comes up after they mow it down. That's exactly right. So it's not necessarily a fresh cut impact. So they're not coming immediately after the brush cutting, but after that vegetation starts to grow back, uh, depending on the time of the year that you cut it, it will grow back with varying levels of quality that will attract animals or not attract animals. And if you just unknowingly cut it at the time of the year, which causes really nice, nutritious growth to occur, then you could be attracting animals into these transportation corridors with the effect of them getting in front of high-speed traffic. So after when you, how much research was being done at the time that you did, that you put that paper up when you were working on that? Like, was that something that either of you were familiar with in the land, in the landscape, uh, the academic landscape, or were there people that were building roads and stuff that said, "Hey, we need to"? Did, did you did you find anybody in inside the ministry and roadways that said, "Yeah, we got to really watch when we cut because it causes big problems," or or did you all of a sudden put that up and they're like, "Oh, never thought of that." Okay, thanks for the tip, guys. Yeah, to be honest, I mean, I don't think anybody had really actually thought of that because this was the result of some of my master's work and it was only taking that and then linking it while I was driving back and forth to my research sites in Vanderhoof and watching the brush cutting machines running up and down Highway 16 thinking, wait a minute, some of the things I'm finding may actually apply to this roadside brush cutting. So I, back in the days when Gail was mentioning that ICBC was really into this wildlife vehicle collision prevention, went to ICBC and I said, hey, I've got an idea and I think that we should really think about this. And they said, guess what? We like the idea and here's a check and hire some students and get at it. And so that's that's how it all got started. Wow. So uh, w when were you doing that research at the time? That research was in, I finished my master's in 99, started to write things up in 2000 and about 2001, 2002, I approached ICBC and we started the research actually in 2001. So, Gail, how long is the, the program? So it's the Wildlife, uh, wildlife life collision. collision Prevention Program. Okay. And coincidentally, uh, our program started around the same time that Roy was doing his academic work. Um, ICBC at that time was really interested in testing out um, an innovative animal detection camera system down in the Kootenays. One of those systems where an animal walk along the roadside, it'll lights during the signs would flash. The signs, yeah. the lights flash, the signs flash, and that kind of stuff. So they were interested in finding partners who could work on that with them, which is how uh, BC Conservation Foundation originally became involved. Um, and so BCCF was doing our work with ICBC around this camera system. Roy's starting to think about brushing and roads and moose and collisions, and um, Roy and I had known each other, our paths had crossed, um, you know, some years previously. And then the, th the third kind of tie-in to that was um, an initiative up here in the north sponsored by the Northern Health Authority called uh, Road Health. 
and um, at Northern Health. Northern Health. Oh wow! Okay. Because <laughs> if this is a crazy intersection, I'm interested. It now. is. Yeah. Okay. Because a lot of people get injured and killed on our roads, regardless of whether right. it's uh, wildlife collisions or not. Or not. Yep. And so they sponsored a big conference around road health. Okay. And so animals got drawn into that. Roy and I reconnected, um, and ICBC was there. The RCMP. Ministry of Transportation, of course, who are responsible for safety on the roads. And we all kind of uh, came together at the same time and formed some really good working partnerships amongst those organizations. And is that where the the collision program was born out of? Mm, We came a little bit before that, uh, independently with ICBC. With ICBC. But but our focus here in the north, which is really where my working emphasis has been, uh, came out out of that meeting again with Roy when when his academic thinking was going on what is going on with moose and roads and brush and stuff like that so so let's just take a look at some just some numbers just some general numbers that I, I plucked from the interweb um, you have about 24,400 animals are hit every year by vehicles uh, approximately 6,100 are killed and then you have about an annual uh, mortality rate for people of about three in wildlife related collisions but another 650 people are injured is that accurate well, data is um, data is a hard question, but uh, your your numbers of about sixty one hundred animals killed every year th- that number comes from the Ministry of Transportation. Okay, their numbers come from the maintenance contractors. Those guys are contractually obligated to pick up dead animals and report the numbers and, so, and other information. So would that be just big game that's reported, or does that include birds, for example, that they pick up, or just moose, stuff like that? They are contractually obligated to uh, remove things from the road that pose a hazard. Okay. So that's what they do. So, you know, it's anything bigger than about a beaver or fox, gotcha. skunk sometimes. Uh, some big birds, you know, they'll, you know, if there's an eagle or a, a large bird of interest they'll report that um so that's that number 6100 uh, animals killed is a it's an older number it comes from about 2007 um is that number higher i it's hard to know it probably fluctuates over the years um so but, would it, that it's be hard re- to know but that would be reported mortalities that's is that- reported mortalities then you have the number of animals that are hit, um, but they don't die at the roadside or they wander off and die. That's where we estimate there's probably about 24,000 or or upwards of actual collisions that occur. Wow. That's, That's different than the number of um, animals that are that are killed. killed. That's so kind of what I was just looking at here is that like your number here, Don, it says 24,000 24, animals are hit every year, 6,100 are killed. Yeah. So, you know, we've got potentially 20,000 animals just in these numbers here that 20,000 animals wander off after being hit. Yeah, we yep. don't know what happened to them. Yeah. yeah. 18,000 or so animals wander off, 6,000 are killed. That's right. how you get to the 24. Oh, and, okay. and those are animals of all sizes, as you were saying, you know, foxing up. Wow. But this just, but all this, again, is just reported. So this yeah. is either going to be, um, you know, my... I. Like, for instance, I didn't report, you know, the raven that went through my grill. It's not reported. The, you know, the raven's dead and my grill is ruined. And I don't know who to report it to anyway, right? So, mm-hmm. um, but I imagine that there's got to be, and is this, this this is off of highways, FSRs. This would be province-wide. Anytime somebody has said, I there's enough damage that I'm making a claim. Because there probably could be people that might hit a deer, get out and go, oh, there's nothing wrong with my car, right? Or, I, you know, I hit a moose or I hit a bear and I'm not, nothing's wrong with my car. So on we go, not knowing what that outcome would be. Is that fair? 
So uh, our first set of data comes from Ministry of Transportation and dead animals on the road. Second set of data comes from ICBC, where you would claim damage on your vehicle. You're quite right. People don't claim for any number of reasons. Right. Okay. Yeah. So um, there's two sets of information, two sets of numbers about um, how many collisions there are. But it implies a whole third set of numbers that doesn't exist. It, that is the known unknown, yeah. to quote Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> and keep in mind, you also have a lot of people here, not necessarily this summer, but traveling as tourists that aren't registered with ICBC, that aren't right. insured through ICBC, that might hit something, report it to their insurance company in Alberta or in the United States. Mm-hmm. And if that animal doesn't actually show up as a carcass on the side of the road, it doesn't get counted in British Columbia. If it wanders off, even hits the ditch, a grizzly bear drags it off, or it wanders into the woods just far enough out of the right-of-way that it can't be seen, there's there's a lot of unaccounted for animals. So for the, so the, the ones that the, the transport Minister of Transportation is picking up, are they re- so when they go to a, a collision site, um, there's an opportunity to get information that would be useful for very wildlife useful. managers, right? Very useful. So whether it's aging, you know, like age class, sex, all of that, is there mandatory reporting fields or it's like, no, we scraped it up and we threw it in the truck and that's that? The latter. Okay. <laughs> now, now, having said that, okay. having said that, this okay. varies between um, maintenance contractors and it varies between the drivers that mm-hmm. work for those maintenance contractors. If you were driving for a maintenance contractor because of your interests, yeah. you might sit there on the side of the road, necropsy the thing, figure out sex and age class and do all kinds of fun things. Now, does that get reported? I don't think there's any fields for that to be reported. And is it done province-wide? No, it's not. But, but is there an opportunity to do that? Why wouldn't there be an opportunity? Why well, would that not be standardized? I think, I think you have to think about the challenges that maintenance contractors run into. It's January, it's minus mm-hmm. 30, they're plowing a road, there's a dead moose in the middle of the road. What are you going to do? You just got to plow it off into the ditch and just hope that nobody hits you from behind. So I think there are times when there probably are opportunities when they could take time to do it, but there's a lot of times when they are going somewhere with some objective in mind and dealing with that moose and necropsying that moose is not one of their objectives. And I don't think the ministry would really pay for it. This is where you might want to partner with somebody like Spruce City Wildlife that says, I tell you what, you just text me the next time you stop and you can't, let me know where that animal is and we'll have some of our members come out and we'll do the necropsy and we'll submit the teeth for getting the cementum annuli counted and whatever. Right. Okay. Now, I will say that um, there is a standard form that the MOTI guys are supposed to fill out. You know, it's sex, age, number, when did it happen, the location it happened, the time it happened, um, and other information like that. So there is a standard form that they are to fill out. Now, I, I was reading in one of the submissions that you, you put uh, uh, from 2018 that you submitted for uh, when they're looking for pol- soliciting public import, input on that. There's a couple things that you had mentioned in that, which was um, it would be better perhaps if there could be some specificity to the location, GPS coordinates if it was possible. Uh, the development of an app. I think I even made a note. Um, you were talking about whether you could have a, a collision app that they could, uh, a wars app that could be um, uh, implemented by people that are charged with pickup. Because the specificity will be right now to the closest landmark and only if it would be sitting on the roadside. Because if it's down in the ditch, it's out of harm's way. I'm assuming, do they clean the ditch out or only if it's m- been mowed? So they are contractually obligated to report on carcasses or that pose a hazard. That's what they're 
That's what their focus is, is safety. So if a carcass poses a hazard, they remove it. If it's in the ditch and doesn't pose a hazard, they don't remove it, they don't count it. Okay. So um, before we leave the numbers, that's kind of where this underreporting issue comes in. Um, and so from a, a study that uh, we did on northern highways, uh, we estimate that MOT captures about a th- only a third of the known number of collisions that happen. Wow. And ICBC captures maybe about half of the numbers of collisions that happen. So any any number that we talk about when MOT talks about the number of animals killed, that's probably only maybe a third of of the actual number of animals killed. When you talk when you hear ICBC had 11,000 wildlife or animal related claims in a year, that's maybe only about half of the animals that got hit. And all of these agencies acknowledge that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So then we go on to um, how could we improve that kind of reporting, which is some of the things that you mentioned. Um, the maintenance contractors have a, a complicated system of denoting locations along a highway, right. and it's a measured kilometer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 23.2 kilometers from here, yep. 47 kilometers from here. Okay. Um, but it's a complicated system and now everybody has their phone in their pocket. Um, you can GPS locations Mm -hmm. and, uh, since 2008, 18, I should say 2018, MOTI has been, uh, transitioning their contracts with their maintenance contractors to move towards GPS locating of, um, animal carcasses that they come across. And then with, with their, I, I like to, to, to Roy's point, and I'm going to back up a little bit because there, this past winter, the last two winters, they've both been on forestry roads, but, um, you know, Steve and I'd go out and do some winter hunting. And we, you know, at some point, in as, as the snow melts, it uncovers a dead moose, a couple of them, as a, as a matter of fact, that are buried underneath a snow pile. I don't know if it was ever reported. I don't know if it's just, well, I got to get it off the road. So, um that that and that's not a municipal highway. That's just a back road that somebody's maintaining for the, the purpose of accessing fiber. So I, I don't know how much of that gets baked into these numbers. So there's a couple of things that are of concern. One is, um, you know, you're, there's a there, I guess there's layers. One is we need to we're trying to mitigate wildlife collisions for the benefit of wildlife populations for sure. Um, the other part is you know road safety for for people. But if I look at some of the other things downstream of this, there's a there's an opportunity to get an like you said for to necropsy these things to get actual things about age and sex and you know why they're there and you know, um, you know what, is there a, is there an age tendency is there I know we, we'll get into species in a little in a little bit, but there's there's a lot of information that's available right and if it's and and more more importantly there's a lot of mitigation information. It's available if we were more robust in the reporting that we did. ICBC is probably looking at the amount of money they pay out in collisions and said, man, we got to figure this thing out. Like, you know, we've got to find a way to stop wildlife hitting cars because we're it's going to bankrupt us, right? Uh, I mean, it, I, and I'm, I'm assuming that that's got to be wildlife collisions is the one that's probably the biggest thorn in their side because it's the one that they, they can't plan for. But I would suggest that they're, you know, after reading some of this, and, you know, to be fair, I don't know how much thought I ever gave it till we started prepping this episode. But to be fair, when I looked at some of the mitigation things and some of the considerations that you laid out, 
I hadn't thought of them, but it makes pretty good sense for data collection, for understanding the, the frequency, why the accuracy of the pickup location is important, why there needs to be more accuracy in the actual reporting and trying to get the public on side with that. Because you're, you're, I guess you can go out and put all the little flashy lights and signs you want and you can change, you can do that and try to change the animal's behavior. You could put signs out and try to change the driver's behavior. But I mean, right now I would suggest based on what you just said, that number says it went up. Like it's going up, it's not going down. So, you know, road density will be part of that. At some point, somebody's got to, you know, want to bite into this thing. I'm surprised that ICBC, I mean, may, maybe their funding flows differently now, but I think that they would want to be more into this, not less into this. So what do you, what, when, when you wrote this, what happened on the other side of this submission uh, for the Wildlife Act? Well, I don't think that a great deal happened uh, with respect to any changes in the Wildlife Act uh, and wildlife collisions. The, the tie-in to the Wildlife Act would have been uh, probably in the habitat connectivity pieces and um, what can be done to maintain uh, greater connectivity across the landscapes in pinch points. Okay. Uh, for example, you know, pinch points up in the Peace Break um, another one outside of our area up here in the north is Highway 3 along the, the southern boundary. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cranbrook, Elko, Fernie, Sparwood, all those kind of areas. Um, I do not think that there was any specific changes to the Wildlife Act uh, um, that have been proposed as a result of taking into account wildlife collisions. So even if they don't change the act, have you noticed, a, has, has there been more funds appropriated for wildlife collision mitigation? Have they ramped up that in terms of funding at a, at a provincial level? I'm not aware that um, Ministry of Environment or um, Forest Lands, Natural Resources and Rural Development um, have funded any wildlife collision mitigation activities in the past few years. I can't think of any direct funding. Okay. Okay, let's put a pin in that. I've got a couple of other questions to expand upon. Anybody else have anything while we're going along here? Oh, we're good. This is great info. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm learning a lot. <laughs> okay, so um, so what are the principal factors in wildlife collision? What would be the, the biggest things that, that drive the, the incident of collision? So we talked about, um, you know, the, the mowing and, and, and you get the, I guess that's the, the earlier cereal vegetation that's the regrowth. What other things um, contribute to these and, and increase the amount of collision? Well, there's two main factors. There's the animals and there's the people driving the cars. Right. And so you can, you can spend an entire lifetime studying one or the other. You can try and study both. I've decided to think more about animals because <laughs> it's, they're a little easier to understand. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> But uh, you, you certainly have to consider both. And so I think it's super important to think about what's happening with drivers, what are happening with speed limits, what are happening to road surfaces, what are happening to road densities, what are, what's happening with the maximum speed limit that's allowed in a certain area, right? especially relative to what kinds of habitat do you have around it. Not only what kinds of habitat does the highway bisect, but also what's just outside of that. If you've got a highway going through a corridor of trees, which is only 500 meters deep because on the other side of that, it's all clear cuts. <laughs> right. Then mm -hmm. you've got to try and understand, okay, what are the animals that are living in these habitats or what used to be habitats doing with what's left? And where is the habitat? 
and where can they find forage and where can they find cover and where can they find um, some reprieve from wolves and other things that are chasing them around in the woods. And so sometimes maybe they might hang out at a really busy road because the wolves just don't go there as much as they would go to roads that aren't as busy. So there's all kinds of things that are going on. But I think, you know, from, from my perspective, Gail and I have spent a little bit of time thinking about the driver factor. And we published a paper with some other UNBC folks and some, some folks from Prince George here a few years ago that looked at, uh, it was a really fun project. It was looking at YouTube videos of moose vehicle collisions. And it wasn't just collisions, but it was near misses as well. So we tried to look at what were the differences between when a driver who had a dash cam on the dash interacted with the moose and missed it. And how did that differ from the ones that interacted with the moose and hit it? Okay. And uh-huh. the main factor was speed. Like that was the thing that came out significant above everything else. What, what speed did they actually slow down? Did they try and slow down? And if they did, they tended to avoid the collision. And so the other thing that didn't come out significant, but it was part of the model that was significant, was that the more time that you have to observe the animal, the more time you have to react to that. And, and anticipate the its behavior. Right. Yeah. Okay. But speed was the main thing. If, if a driver, upon noticing the animal, were to brake and start to slow down, that was the most significant thing that allowed them to avoid a collision. Okay, so so let's let's uh, let's take. I'm curious about if you look provincially, there's there's a couple of layers I'm looking at. One is let's break down what are the most frequently uh, the, the animals, pardon me, that are most frequently involved. Like what's the mix in terms of collision? What animals are have the highest mortality? Uh, and is so that's the what animals and and is there what animals and is there aware where that happens more is there is there more collision density in certain areas with certain species um, and or is there just specific parts of our road system and I mean I would suggest as a layman on only living in this part of the world for five years there is a little corridor that when you get between Quenell and Williams Lake yep. that seems to <laughs> be deer. just ripe for mule deer collisions yeah, and I, I mean that's sure. that's just me guessing but um I but I'm, I'm curious around the province because some of the things when you, Gail you're talking about number three there was some I think there was bighorn sheep and there was some other there's been certain considerations i know some of that's national parks but there must be certain pockets where moose collisions are really high or bear collisions are really high right who uh, wants to tackle that probably gail can hit the uh the provincial numbers better than i can but i know in the north we've done a couple of studies for icbc and the last time we looked at their data and put it together about 65 percent of the animal vehicle collisions were with deer 25 percent were with moose and there was 4% with elk and 4% with bears. And so majority's deer. And so that's a really interesting thing to ask because if you think about just the sheer numbers, there's far more deer that are getting hit than moose, but moose do far more damage to a vehicle. Yep. And it costs a lot more money to fix that vehicle and to try and fix the people that get hurt if they don't die. Yeah. Because it's just such a... It's a massive animal, animal. Yeah. With, it, with a center of mass way above right. the hood of most vehicles that slides up and through the windshield and peels the roof off oftentimes yeah. like a sardine can. Running, running a car dealership at Prince George, the last five vehicle write-offs that I've done, in the, which is only in the last six weeks, all of them have been moose. And three of those people were hospitalized for some length of time. So, uh, you know, I mean, good news is that 
you know, no, nobody is, you know, permanently injured, but all of those people saw hospital time and all of those cars were, they were not kind of written off. They were completely Yeah, I've seen off. a few like that as well. A friend of mine actually was coming back from Jasper a bunch of years ago and her and her husband, they, they were in their convertible Sebring or something. And the kid was in the back seat and she was in the passenger seat and the moose just happened to come right over and she ended up with a skull skull fracture and the kid would have been killed if he wasn't asleep in the back seat. So back back to the deer thing, I, I totally noticed that with the, the Quinelda Williams Lake stretch, the right time of year, they're everywhere. It, would that be related to a migration sort of thing? It could be related to a lot of different things. For moose, it tends to be related to them moving from high country down into the valleys in the winter. So our, our peak in moose vehicle collisions tends to be in December and January. That's what we think it's linked to. Right. There hasn't really been enough research done on that. But we also have a smaller midsummer peak where it seems, the data seem to indicate that it's related to them using roadside mineral licks, which is something they really key in on. This is low-lying areas of the ditch where water accumulates, usually associated with a culvert that receives all of the road salt that's applied in the wintertime yep. or de-icing. Yep. And it ends up accumulating in roadside ditches and then the animals start using it and get used to using it and teach their calves to use it. Yep. And unless you decommission that by putting a fence around it or filling it with rock or something like that, the animals will continue to use it. And they won't just use it from one side of the road, they'll come from the other Both side of the sides. road to do that. And when they do it, look out. Yeah, wow. we're seeing, seeing that up north with, uh, with the Wild Sheep Society. We're actually doing a, a project up there with the, the rams. And Gail's nodding her head like she knows about it. So, yeah, it's the same sort of thing as you say that the, they, they teach their young where where the, the minerals are, the food is, the water is, and we happen to be the ones driving through there, and they don't know any better. So so when you look, so for in the now – Gail, provincially, is there any other areas that are province-wide? I mean, it's a, this is a, it's not just the Northern BC podcast. So, right. Uh, so if you so, look at wildlife around the province, what are the hotbeds? Well, so provincially, it's the Kootenays. Um, about 55% of all wildlife collisions in the province happen in the Kootenays. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I would not have known that. And that's, about, that's the driver problem, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> and about 20% are in northern BC. So whether you define north as Quesnel or, or Williams Lake, northern BC, northern 20%. BC. 20% and, the, and the remainder are, um, you know, are lo- lower mainland and Vancouver Island, which has a big deer problem. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so that's how it's split up amongst the province. So, 50, so in that, in that you know, 55% in the Kootenays, what is that wildlife population represented by? Who are the... What's the, who are the repeat offenders by the highest volume, by species? Oh, deer. Whitetail white and mule deer? Whitetail, elk. Yeah. Um, it's not broken down by species on uh. horse reports. But, but, the, <laughs> but the, repeat, the repeat offender species is Homo sapiens. We know that people are 100% involved in those. So, <laughs> so if, if I was going to name hotspots in the province, uh, we talked about Highway 3, right the way from a Soyuz all the way through uh, to the Alberta border. Um, I would say Highway 33 from Kelowna to Rock Creek. Rock Creek, okay. Um, uh, very bad for deer. Um, mm-hmm. We've done a research project uh, on underreporting on that particular highway, so we have some good ideas of numbers, and and that's a significant stretch of road. I'd be careful on that, and it's part of a really popular motorcycle touring circle yep. route. Yep. Uh, so there's a motorcycle component in there that's uh, quite deadly for both vehicles and uh, and the riders and the riders. Yeah. 
Um, and then I would say the same uh, stretch from um, Quinell to Williams Lake, Williams Lake to 100 Mile for deer. And then I would mention also highways up north here, Chetwind, Dawson Creek, Dawson yeah. Creek to Fort St. John uh, for moose. For moose. Yeah. So in what drives some of these 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 hot pockets? I mean, I, I know the question was, you know, it's migration, but I mean, is it, is it just, is it animal density in those particular areas? I mean, the amount of mule deer in particular that are in that one spot is significant. Um, you know, Chetwind, Dawson Creek, again, moose density i don't i don't know i haven't actually looked at that area but i is the moose density just higher up there is that part of it i mean density has to drive some of the the frequency i would suggest absolutely i mean if you have 0.1 moose per kilometer squared you're not going to hit nearly as many as you would if you have one moose per kilometer squared so density is a big factor now how traffic density and traffic volume influences collisions uh the literature's kind of um this, 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 a lot of people argue about whether or not higher volumes of traffic or lower volumes of traffic actually contribute to collisions. There's some moderate levels, obviously, that if you have just one or two cars going from Prince George to McBride, you're not going to, it's going to be pretty hard to hit something, but as mm. you go to a hundred or a thousand, but what, what the people are arguing about that are writing these papers is that if you have a really high density of traffic. Sometimes it almost creates a fence and the animals just don't even go anywhere near They're it because there's just to too move. many yeah. vehicles moving back and forth, Harley Davidson motorcycles with their loud mufflers and so forth, and they just stay away. Mm -hmm. But if you have these low densities, animals will cross, not thinking that there's any harm in it, and then you get these moderate densities and they might make a run for it, maybe they don't, maybe they get hit. So, uh, But one thing's for sure, an answer to your question is that the density of animals does have a huge impact on whether or not you're hitting more, for instance, in northern BC moose, because up until about 2010, we were hitting reported. This is these are the reported right, numbers. The reported hitting, numbers hitting around you know somewhere between 500 and 800 moose every year between you know the 90s and the 2000s, and then all of a sudden, as you all are very well aware, yep. we've had a 50 to 70 percent decline in moose populations around here. Yeah, for all kinds of reasons that are probably probably cumulative. Yep. And as a result, we've seen the moose vehicle collisions drop off to the same extent that so we've seen the populations. Yes. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So when you look at um, certain animals have a tendency, because it's funny when you said bears and elk. So uh, I'll just use a quick example. Uh, going to Jasper on Sunday. Uh, we're at the, there's a little uh, rest stop just near the, the Vailmont uh, Highway yep. Exchange. Yeah. So mm -hmm. we drive by and I look in and there's a black bear in there eating Saskatoons. But I mean, that's just a, it's a sheer cliff. It's not, it's not a good place to hang out for the day underneath there. Come up, eat the Saskatoons. But what I noticed was a five minutes later, we kind of get into a stretch uh, along the river and another bear comes across the road, but the false starts that he made, but he was more cautious. It's like, he was like, okay, I'm going to time this. But deer tend to just, Go. Like like when they just they just seem to go like their behavior is different, you know. And moose, I, I don't know what is it with moose, but my my experience with moose around here when I do run into them uh, tends to be closer in the evening, and they t they tend not to want to cross. They tend to want to run and then try to run in front, right? And and I'll avoid you by outrunning you, but deer <laughs> just tend to want to go. Like it's like. That deer better not go. The deer's in the ditch. Oh, and all yeah. of a sudden, the deer's like, I think I can make it. There, it there's, there's that video going around right now on the internet uh, of the, it's, it's out of the back of their pickup truck and they're pulling a travel trailer or something. And you hear the lady go, oh, no, 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 no. And bang, this white tail just gets 
hammered and it goes into the front of their their uh trailer and she screams and the deer jumps out and runs away and she goes oh it's fine and, and that's the end of the video so that it's that it, it to me it's just i i watch bears look like they like i can see them swinging their head like they're gonna they're gonna time it. it's like we're okay here the car's coming deer don't seem to be anywhere near as aware they just kind of let's just get up on the road and we'll wait and then we'll start to go if there's an opening uh, moose, you know, I'm not sure. And I find it interesting that elk are so small in the collision percentage. Um, is, is there something well, just different in, in, in their, it's either their physiology or just the way that they're wired in their behavior, their, their instinctive behavior? Well, I think it's a density dependent thing here because we just, in those years in which we did the study for the collisions and attributed 65% to deer and 25% to moose and 4% to elk, we just didn't have very dense populations of elk. Right. Um, and so another interesting thing that might factor in here, though, is in the paper that I was talking about earlier that Gail and I did, we were watching YouTube videos, there was a tendency of folks when there were more than one animal on or near the road that they were able to avoid that collision more than if it was a singleton. And we know that elk tend to hang out in herds. They, there's usually yeah, right. more than Makes one sense. elk, right. whereas moose are often just seen alone. So maybe it's a bit of their herding behavior that it's just easier to see, easier to detect, more time to apply the brakes. Maybe they just don't, I don't see them along roads very much either, unless you're in Jasper and there they love the roadsides. Yeah, I don't. They're, they're, <laughs> I think it's mostly a density thing though. Yeah, because for us, the only time, it's funny because the only time I see elk here on the road is in the wintertime between uh, here and Salmon Valley, mm -hmm. um, or pardon me, the Salmon Forestry Road. There's one corridor, there's a big herd by Wright Creek, and it's, to me, they must be in the, in the ditch for the salt. It's the only reason I can see, because they're standing, they're standing in there. I don't know what they're eating, because there's six feet of snow. The only thing I can determine is if they're, you know, if they're <laughs> up to their chest, they have to be in there having a salt lick. Because that's the only time I ever see them. Because, I mean, elk, to me, are just not something that you see frequently, not on roadways. And when I, when I think of density, I think of black bears. I'm surprised right. there's just not more black bear collisions. Sure. Maybe they aren't reported. I don't know, but they may not be reported. Remember that half of the year bears are sleeping, so yeah, that's so there's. Um, but still, you're right. There's there's a high density of black bears, and based on the densities, you'd think there'd be a lot more than four percent getting yeah. hit. So it's just it. I, I think I think it does have something to do with their behavior. Maybe their savviness around roads and vehicles, because I've seen different species do different. Things. I've I actually watched a martin come up to the shoulder of the road one time. I was driving up to Mackenzie. And it stood on the shoulder and it looked this way and it looked that way. It looked this way and it looked that way. It started and then it saw a car and it turned around and ran. So, I mean, even Martin can well, yeah. can become savvy <laughs> and they know whether or not to try and cross that road. But I think there is big differences in the behavior of animals and, and how they perceive roads and how they hear vehicles approaching and these kinds of things. Is it, is and, and the differences between um, prey and predator species and how yes. they perceive their environment as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I, I never think. thought of that. That's, that's a really good point. Yeah. yeah. yeah I and, never. and, and um, you know, eyesight and, and vision and perceptions straight ahead to the side, that kind right. of thing. And the attracted, attractiveness of the habitat along the roadside to, to mm -hmm. different species yeah. as well. So I, I, I was going to say about deer behavior, though, because I, um, part of my work um, was quite a bit of public education. Roy does the, the, the deep thinking and the academic research and the, aha, I'm driving along the road and I've had this great thought. What can we do about it? And I uh, was doing a lot of public awareness for people and trying to trying to talk to people about wildlife on the road. And, and it's such an engaging topic. Mm -hmm. Once you, 
you think you get past the ick factor of the, of the dead animals. <laughs> yep. Everybody wants to go for a drive and see some wildlife on the road. They just don't want to see it up close and personal on the hood. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, and so it's just a, a great topic to to engage people with. Oh, and so, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That, it's interesting, though, about the, the bear, though, because that's all I see that are as roadkill between the bridge here and up by our place. There's I, I see... What, what direction is that? Uh, going north. Going oh. Oh, north. Yeah. yeah. So yeah I, I, you I see, see bears. Half, I see half a dozen a year dead on the side of the road. And mule deer. Yep. And, and, and you'll see, hear people saying it on Facebook. Oh, just watched a black bear get hit by the, the A&W on the Hart Highway. And it's always being reported. Yeah, and I think in town might be different. But I mean, and that's because of frequency mm-hmm. of traffic. I mean, you've got a median for them to deal with. But generally speaking, there's probably, there's, I guess density will, will probably lift those numbers, but you know what probably fix a lot of this speculation would be better reporting. Was that a good say? Was that, was that good? Did yeah. I well, that? But, but, but can I bring up one thing before we go there? Because I think it's really important. You bring up a good point, and you had mentioned earlier that a lot of these collisions happen in the evening. They happen in low light. Right, right. And so if we think about when moose are getting predominantly hit which is in the winter time this is a time of the year in which most of our driving is taking place at night in right. the dark yeah whereas in summer when you think about the time of the year that bears are active it's light all the time you're going to see right. that bear especially yep. black or cinnamon or chocolate yep. bear you're going to see that thing on that road 10 o'clock at night because the sun's still up yep. whereas if those animals who are really visible in the summer aren't getting hit as much. And then we start going into a winter period and we start seeing more deer collisions, more moose collisions. It's because I think a big part of it is because we're just doing a lot more of our on the way to work and on the way home from work. It's at night. Yeah. Right. And that's part of it. It's, it's hard to see. Is, is there a, is there a time of year, like species aside, is there a time of year when collisions go up? Is that like winter or is it, is there more in the summertime? Like what, yeah, for, for deer, it's generally October and November. And for moose, the right. peak is um, the peak is December and January. For bears, the peak is actually September. So as they're preparing for oh, carnivore lethargy and they're looking to bulk up and right. get those things in that they need, they're just running around. But, but they become so food motivated. And then it's interesting. So deer, you get the rut. And I mean, you particularly, I, I bet you if, we, if you did a, I guess they all would be affected because... A, a, a buck in particular, but even does their their awareness goes out the window, uh, particularly when you get into that latter part. You know, once photo period kicks in and they start down that cycle, that last you know three or four weeks, I'd be interested to see like if that's the peak because they're just. I mean, that's how you take advantage of them when you're hunting them. They're just completely unaware of their surroundings. They're way less skittish. They become very you know tunnel vision. But bears, I was trying to explain to my wife like what what bears are like when they have food, <laughs> and you know when we go out hunting and you see them on a dandelion patch, they're completely oblivious. They just shovel their faces. Well, we videoed this bear like cleaning out this Saskatoon. Oh yeah, with pic- near the picnic. And my table. wife's like, "You were right. Like you could hear him eating, and he was not leaving. They just become super fixated." But in the fall, when they are on a food source or moving towards food, they are they are of their own mind and they are very specific in what they're what they're off for. So, so maybe their awareness goes down because they're super food motivated. Um, when it comes to um, in in rural areas versus urban areas, um, are there are there any um, urban centers like in and around Vancouver? Are there any hot pockets or Victoria or any of the larger centers where you get certain wildlife? I mean, I know Kamloops. Every time we go through Kamloops, I almost always hit a deer. 
somewhere on that highway exchange, just, just as you're just north of town. It almost always happens. But Are, are we going to have to rack up like a personal count for you? <laughs> <laughs> so far I've had ravens, deer, and... I, I've, only, I've only had the raven so far, but just, just uh, don't, I've had lots of close calls. Don't ask him about driving on snowy roads. Yeah. Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there certainly are wildlife collisions that happen in urban areas, and it's primarily deer, although here in Prince George we have a little, a few hotspots for moose. Right. Um, so that's um, mostly almost entirely related to urban, increasing urban deer populations. So uh, Nanaimo Van- on Vancouver Island, right. um, Comox Courtney area on Vancouver Island, uh, in the Kootenays, you would, I would say, uh, Grand Forks, uh, Kimberley, Cranbrook, um, all have urban deer issues, and Kelowna, city of Kelowna. Um, they all have urban deer, deer issues. Urban yep. deer issues and the, and numbers of deer vehicle collisions that are of concern. Dustin's then, writing all this down for hunting season. <laughs> deer are here. Downtown deer are here. Kelowna. <laughs> but, but what, I guess yeah, what, what, I, I would also say uh, bighorn sheep uh, near Radium. Yes. On the hill Hot Springs um, going uh, south. Pulling, it's called a mile hill, mile right hill south yeah. out of out of radium yeah has a, quite a hot spot for bighorn sheep is that just is it just so one of the things that comes up is you overlay roads along habitat right and you know over time you know it's like this has been real this is a great spot for us and it's like we stick a road right down the middle of it right and then without consulting them but that ends up being in Kelowna you could see it because it's I mean that I guess that's it's it's interesting because in Kelowna now you've got orchards and all of these other mm-hmm. attractants just become natural attractants in this what becomes more like a food corridor like a it's a souped up food corridor right but but Kelowna between pretty much Vernon to uh, Kelowna proper Kelowna proper they've got wildlife fences now 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 so that are those effective. They're very effective. In terms of mitigation measures, they're probably mm-hmm. one of the most effective things that you can do. The the most effective. Yeah. When if combined with um, underpasses and overpasses, so you can have some movement to the animals, you're not isolating populations on either side of the road. I think the number is upwards of 94% yeah. oh, wow. effective in yeah. preventing collisions. And so we have, um, of course, the Coquihalla yes. yep. is fenced um, and was in, fenced early whenever they built it, which was a long time ago now. It was a a very early uh, project in terms of collision mitigation. Now, there's only the one overpass um, on the connector, I think, that goes from Merritt to mm-hmm. yep. Beach Beachland. Yep. That's the only place where there's a connector. Um, and the other ones are in, I've seen one near uh, Banff. There's there's one near Banff on Highway 1. Is yep. there a second one as well on that? I think in the, so the federal parks, uh, uh, Banff, uh, Lake Louise, uh, Yoho, Kootenai National Parks have the advantage that the mandate of those parks is preservation and conservation of the resource, the natural resources. So they have dedicated funding to apply excellent research and excellent mitigation to the wildlife collision issue. And th- those funds are not available to our provincial ministries of transportation. And so I think in the... Ja- in um, Banff, Lake Louise, I think there's six overpasses and 33 underpasses or oh, wow. something like that. That's a huge number, hugely effective. But extremely expensive to build. Right? And maintain. And, and maintain. maintain, yeah. So yeah, the, because with all those overpasses and underpasses is all of the fencing. Yep. Yeah. Right. So I, I can't remember where I read it, but I, I was reading, um, it's got to be four years ago. I was just reading, I, I don't remember if it was a paper or just an article 
that talked about how wildlife, uh, some wildlife like those things and some wildlife don't. So some wildlife will only cross over and some of them will only cross under. What is, is there a specific species or is it an individual? Um, how do those things get utilized? I think, I think the easy way to answer that is it, it varies by species, but it also varies by individual within the species. Okay. And um, there are certain animals that just will not use an underpass, but will use an overpass. And there's other animals that are afraid to use either one because you got to remember that, well, for something like a moose, and they do go in underpasses, but to go in an underpass, that's a weird, like when do moose travel in tunnels? Mm-hmm. They just don't. They don't, right. And so it's it's a bit odd, whereas something like a bear, maybe it doesn't even think about it twice. And then not only that, but even with a, an overpass that's vegetated, looks very natural, sometimes just that noisy traffic and all of those right. Harley Davidsons underneath um, just don't don't allow it to feel comfortable to use that overpass. But the overpasses, I think, Gail knows the research better than I do on this, but I think the overpasses are used far more than the than underpasses. The underpasses in terms of number of species that will use them, especially once they've been vegetated and it's all natural and mature vegetation that's grown up on those things, then uh, they're more, I think they're more likely to be used in the underpasses. Although the, the it, overpasses. Yeah, the yeah. overpasses are more likely to yeah. be used in the underpasses. Yeah. yeah, so I would agree with that too. Deer, moose, elk would all you know, given a choice, would select an overpass. Yeah. Um, they have been all known to use underpasses. Um, some deer will even swim through an underpass, like a big culvert that goes underneath uh-huh. it. Because there's a um, lot of this research, of course, involves um, camera trap monitoring. So lots of pictures of animals using all of these kind of structures, and everyone is analyzing the data do they, every, every which way. Do they so. use a lot of cameras because it's an opportunity to capture movement um, and get an idea of inventory and stuff in a certain area? Are all of those generally fixed with a camera or is it just... Oh, I, I think that's standard standard protocol now. Okay. If you're going to okay. put in a grade separation that you're going to use cameras to, to monitor the effectiveness of it. Okay. That's well, and it's, well, I would say... Um, if, if you can afford it and you can keep people from stealing them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it happens... Uh, a lot more, it seems to me, that type of monitoring, extended long-term monitoring, happens um, quite well in the States, and maybe there's less opportunity for that to happen up here. Okay. So. If on a long-term basis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Although I'm, in, I'm involved with some projects with the Ministry of Transportation where they've been funding long-term camera monitoring, and they continue to do that. So, so it does happen in some parts, and it's happening in Northern British Columbia right now. So... You've got underpasses, that's the most, that's lots of infrastructure, lots of cash. Wildlife fencing would be second. What are the other mitigation strategies that get used um, that you think are effective? I know signs and stuff was, was was one of the ones that was listed, but there seems to be, you have different gradations of signs, and we've, we've taken a look at sign technology or what works and what doesn't. Are signs more... Uh, I know there's there's the light thing that you talked about, but signs are really more for, for driver awareness, right? To, to force them to change behavior and get their foot off the gas. Is that kind of what they're about? Well, uh, unless you talk to Donna the deer lady, <laughs> <laughs> um, which which could have been a rigged call. So um, yeah, the, the signs are there for the people, not the deer. Uh, yeah. If only, if only Roy could figure out a way to make the moose read the signs we'd all be fine I'm working yeah, on yeah. It. yeah so how do those we see so, the signs everywhere how do they come up with those locations 
Well, mm-hmm. for a long time, it was local knowledge. Okay. You know, your local maintenance contractor, your local highways guy, you know, is picking up moose carcasses at this particular spot. So they put a sign. Okay. Uh, then it, it uh, has morphed now um, into um, much more science or evidence-based locations. Here in northern BC, we can be um, pretty darn confident that the signs are located in areas where collisions are highest based on the maintenance contractor data. And that's due to Roy's good work of driving around the highways and writing down where all the signs were (laughs) and preparing a report for the Ministry of Transportation that says this is where your signs are and this is where the collisions are and never the two shall meet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because you'll see signs that say like moose for the next nine kilometers or bears for three. Yeah, and that's based on, on, um, on their numbers. So here in the north, you can be pretty confident if you see a sign, you should pay attention to it. And you'll see them changing based on the last five years of data. So those signs should move? They should. Okay. Uh, I mean, if the habitat around it's changing and population densities and dynamics are changing, those signs should be moving, and, and they most often do. But that would that relies on the fact that you would have accurate inventories at all times of all species. That does, but even if you don't say that your moose vehicle collision data suggests that uh, you have a hot spot 20 kilometers east of Prince George, even if you're only capturing 50% of the collisions that happen there, it's still 50% of the collisions that are happening there, and it's still more of a hot spot than 10 kilometers farther Farther east. And so just assuming that you're in every hot spot, you're only capturing 50% of the collisions, then it's still telling you where there is a hot spot and where the sign should go. Okay. It would be nice to have the extra 50%. Right. To really build the case that you need the sign, but... Know that corridor you're referring to out east, too. (laughs) (laughs) That long. And and I would say that wildlife wildlife signs, the leaping deer sign or moose, or occasionally you'll see a bear on the Sea to Sky Highway, you'll see bear signs. Um, In the Kootenays, you'll see some elk signs um, and bighorn sheep signs. Uh, Those are... Um, not those signs do not mean that you must slow down. Right. They are signs that say you must watch for wildlife while driving in this area. You don't, you are not um, uh, obligated to decrease your speed when you see a wildlife warning sign. Yeah. Even a hundred mile, you'll see the watch for badgers sign, which I thought was kind of cool. The watch for badger sign was actually, um, uh, my program actually managed to scrape <laughs> together the funds and convince MOT that it should go there and to put it up That's and it's great. gone now. It is because they got rid of the program. They got, yeah, they yeah, got rid of the, well, the Report of Badger program. Yes, they did get rid of the Report of Badger program that shouldn't have affected the placement of the sign. No, but... But uh, coincidentally, they both kind of disappeared at the same time. Yeah. So why Odd. would you take the sign down though? Didn't, I mean, it's are badgers extinct? They are... What, red listed in, in BC? There's a population but, but isn't, less. So isn't, isn't the awareness that, like, to leave a sign up, what does that cost you? Oh. Well, well, that is the, the badger sign in particular. That's a known unknown. I don't know why they took the sign down. Could have fallen down and just not been replaced. Yeah. Could have could been have, something as simple as that. Could have been cut with a tiger torch or with a, uh, a cutting torch and uh, put on somebody's garage wall. Great this point. is what happened to many of our signs around here that we installed for very specific reasons, for very specific hotspots, for a very specific species. And we installed signs with solar panels that had LED yep, light-ups yep. that were programmed to go off at the time of the year and the time of the day right, right. when drivers should be aware of what's you going on. Yeah, I do. And they were cut down. Somebody Are those the LET the, or the LET signs? Is that part of that, or am I is that am I confusing the lexicon there? Uh, so. LED. They uh, just had LED little 
Yeah, you, same, you, same thing. Same thing. Yes. Okay. Yep. LED yeah. is something enhanced. It's a MOT term. Okay. Yeah. And the other sign that got removed that we got to talk about was East of Prince George, which was the big yellow moose silhouette yes. sign. Um, one of those was stolen, and then the other one was removed because they were. We needed to mark the start and end of the Moose Collision right. Hotspot. So, yeah, that was another one that was adorning someone's garage. If anybody knows where the big yellow moose silhouette sign is, please let us know. How, how much, do, uh, just just on the signs, because, I, I mean, as a, as a not-for-profit ourselves, I mean, funding is always, you know, it, it is always a hot topic with us. Because <laughs> science costs money, and, and this obviously costs money. So yeah, it's great. It's like, you know, people steal a stop sign and it's, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful prank and it, you know, it's great for your college dorm, but then, I mean, it has to be replaced. There's a finite budget for all of these. So what's an average sign? So that big moose sign, um, I can only imagine what that costs. I think it was $10,000, wasn't it, Gail? 10000 Yeah, the big ones, that yeah. sounds good. Yeah. Because it's this very special reflective material that goes on them. It was cut into a, it was a live life-size moose silhouette. It had these big beams that was holding it up. It yeah. had reflectors on the back at installation costs. I mean, it all adds up. Wow. Oh, I had I, no I idea. think that's what it was. It yeah, was either. That, yeah. yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. Plus the cost of installing it and whatever. Well, I think that's yeah. all in. Yeah, that's all part in. of it. That's yeah. crazy. So, um, and when signs go missing, I mean, do you, do you try to get them replaced and backfilled in next year's budget? Or if something happens and then they say, hey, we're not doing the Badger thing anymore and then it's out the window. Like, well, how, if that sign sounds like it's expensive, so it needed to be there for a reason. So how do you get that sign back up? I think it's a decision that the maintenance contractor and Ministry of Transportation have to make together. And it probably depends a little bit on how long ago was it put up and does it need to remain in that spot? Should we move it a little bit? Should we rethink this a little bit? Um, but in the case of the moose silhouettes that were one was stolen and the other was taken down, what they did is they uh, put them, they replaced them with other signs that are corridor signs that says watch for. And in this right. case, I'm pretty sure it says not just moose, but also deer and it bear. It says, uh, it's a tri diamond shaped sign and it has a, it does have a moose it, on it. It has a moose, it has a bear a moose. and a deer. Yeah. And a deer. Yeah. And a deer. Yeah. Okay. And those are yeah. uh, corridor signage meant to inform the driver that the entire stretch of highway um is you may encounter wild, wildlife on that entire stretch of highway. So it's a that's gauntlet. A, it, yeah, it's a real notification yeah. signed by MOT, not necessarily, it doesn't designate a hotspot at all. Okay. Yeah. Although in this case, it, it I, does because it, re, yeah, normally it wouldn't. And you see these corridor signs as you leave population centers, yes. you'll see them on the highways leaving. But in this one particular case where they the, the sign was stolen, that was the silhouette, it's on either side of an area where there are high moose collisions. Yes, yeah. it's true. Yeah. And it, yeah. so it should be replaced. What about okay. virtual fencing? I saw that as one of the mitigation tools. Um, what's involved in that? Is that something that's just like a perimeter fence that just lights up as animals get close to scare them off? I think what you must be referring to is reflectors, wildlife reflectors. Okay. So um, you can see wildlife reflectors on posts along the right of way and they are... Um, they look like bicycle reflectors. Okay, on yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, those were installed, I think, in the 80s and 90s in many locations uh, around the province and, and other jurisdictions, U.S. and other countries. Um, and the thinking behind those was as the vehicle's headlights drive along the road, 
The headlights catch those reflectors and create a virtual wall of light that would distract the animals and, and keep them away from the roads. Okay. So that's I'm glad you mentioned that because um, they have been proven to be completely ineffective. Okay. Oh. Animals become habituated to them. They walk around to the end and cross there. Um, they can become dirty. They get out of alignment. They're just not effective. And the current policy from MOT is not to put up any more installations and to remove the existing ones. I don't know how much removal is going on, but I know they're not putting up any more. So, yeah, so it's it, it's not an effective tool that they're not Not an effective tool at all. The other thing I wanted to say that's not effective, people always ask about, is deer whistles. Oh, I was, I was just thinking about that. I was just saying the little dollar store whistle I can stick on my bumper. Does that help? Oh, my great uncle used to swear by one. Yes. I never I never hit a deer. It's because I had one of those. Yeah, yeah. No, so no, I, it wasn't. I hear lots of people who anecdotally will say, I put that thing on my car and I've driven thousands, hundreds of thousands of kilometer scale and I have not seen a deer. So, however, um, those have also been proven as best one can through scientific method um, to be ineffective. They're either at the wrong frequency um, or they are not loud enough for the, the deer to hear or you don't know what the intended effect could be. It might startle the deer towards the road. Um, so, yep, no deer whistles. Um, although, you know, if it makes you feel better, you can put one on. But the danger is, of course, that people become complacent right. and, it's- you know, they drive as if they were had a fence around them so in essence it's hokum but the guy's already made his money that produced the thing so yes maybe we should get that guy to kick in for some new signs <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so if you take a look at um i'm just gonna i want to make a departure for a little bit i know it, it's not going to be the it was going to be the main t- discussion but one of the things we wanted to cover at least lightly was the effect of um, rail collisions on wildlife populations and i and i would suggest that around here uh, particularly in the wintertime uh, we see that that's that becomes uh, like that sh- that skyrockets just because I, I don't think they have a, a, an escape route. But the other part of it that's interesting is there is there a mandate on uh, CN or or any rail company to report uh, wildlife collision? Well, there there was I think beginning in the early '90s an MOU between the rail corporations and the ministry to report. Any moose vehicle co- or moose, yeah, moose train, moose vehicle collisions. I'm not sure about deer and elk. I'm I'm assuming it was all part of the same memorandum of understanding. Right. Uh, those numbers were reported to the ministry for quite a few years, and the ministry held them for several years. I don't know if that program continues. I did work on some collision mitigation for moose train collisions in the early 2000s with Ken Child okay. and with CN, Luann Patterson. And uh, they, they sponsored, we had a moose conference here in 2007, a North American moose conference and workshop, and Ken and I were co-chairs. And we worked with Dan Aiken, who was one of the old presidents of Spruce City Spruce Wildlife, City Wildlife yeah. and uh, worked with CN to try and put together a few things from the data that they did have in terms of what time of the year, what time of the day, what do we know about moose collisions on rail lines and where can we go from here? And I know that right now there's a group active out of Telqua and I think now they've expanded to the Upper Fraser, which is the CN Wildlife Collision Working Group. I think specifically the Moose Collision Working Group and they've done some fencing. I do know that wherever there are trains, wherever there are, are rail lines bisecting moose habitat, that you do have problems with trains hitting moose. This is not just 
in British Columbia, it's wherever there are moose and wherever there are trains. And unless right. they've got those uh, rail transportation corridors fenced off, the, the moose are going to get on the tracks. And if they get on the tracks when the snow is deep and they start running from a train and they try and get off the tracks and they get up to their chest in snow, they're heading right back onto the track. Because I've been in one of these high rail pickups and gone down a railroad and watched exactly what the moose do. And they run down the railroad, they try and get off if the snow's too deep, they just come right back on and then they go back off again and come back on because it's it's no good if you get into deep snow and you can't evade that no. predator. And no. they just don't have a sense. I mean, evolution hasn't taught them that that track that they're on is the same track that that predator is going to keep coming down unless they get off of it. Right. And so there have been years in northern British Columbia when BC Rail was still around. There was a fellow that I worked with who was the environmental coordinator who said in bad years that BC Rail alone would hit up to 400 moose in one winter, oh, yeah. in a bad winter. And that was just BC Rail. Just BC Rail. Just BC Rail. So there are impacts. What those are these days, I don't know. I, don't, I haven't seen any data lately. But there are impacts. And I know even in the... I think it was the 70s or 80s, there were more than a dozen in one train collision, there were more than a dozen caribou that were killed somewhere around Crescent Spur, if, if wow. my memory serves me right. They came around the corner, it was deep snow year, all the caribou were concentrated on the railroad track and they killed quite a few in one fell swoop. So we don't know if there's, uh, I'm just curious, there's no clarity on whether there's mandatory reporting. What about... Um, what about where where industry puts a road? Let's look. Let's look at like a forestry company putting a road in someplace, or a rail line. Um, I think one of the things that I that I read, Gail, was uh, one of the things that you 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 asked is why is there no um, funding mechanism where, particularly where where there's uh, mortality. Let's say it would be on moose. Why is there not money put back into you know a habitat conservation trust fund or something that would go back into research uh, for better mitigation, you know, better wildlife science, et cetera. You know, when you've got these people in, in, in that are putting either, they're adding to road density, they're adding to, you know, the frequency of collision, or in the case of the rail line, they're they're not putting a lot of effort at, at, a, at escape routes, right, or exclusion zones, I guess. Um, I don't see that. I don't think they've changed how they plow the rail line. They go down. I don't know how often they leave an, uh, an exit corridor for, uh, for wildlife. So has any, how many times has that been tabled to either a forestry company or a mining company or, you know, pipeline company or a rail company when it says, like, when it comes to road density, you guys create, um, you know, just, it, it's just, it's a byproduct of what you've done, right? It, you have an impact on wildlife. You need to pay back into the pot uh, because you had, there was numbers that you would put in there. And it's interesting because... I think my friend Michael Schneider and Mike Morris would love that. You put a value on the the lost value of wildlife to tourism from wildlife collisions at four was it four hundred and fifty million dollars? Am I it's a different might be a different article. But I, I, I saw that number referenced and that, that's the first time somebody had actually quantified wildlife from the, 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 the loss of viewing and the, the just to tourism in general. So I thought that was very interesting. If I came up with that number, which you've got my report right there, and I haven't looked at it for a couple of years, I would have probably gotten that number from an estimate that Ministry of Transportation put out some years ago. Okay. So I could I can find that number. If it's in there, then I, I've got a reference for it. So that's the first point. Um, and I'm not too aware of 
how often wildlife has been quantified like that uh, for its recreational I, I, values. A, yeah, so, for, yeah, it was it was interesting though because yeah. Yeah, I, I mean the fact that it was quantified by somebody. We often talk about that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is that there needs to be consideration and management practices by putting a value on biodiversity. And that was the first time. I mean, I looked at the number. I'm like, hell yeah! Like I like that number. Mm-hmm. That that's that's representative of what we want it to be like, right? And, and that would be a number from some years ago too. Um, yeah, so it's got to have gone up. Yeah, I would think so. You've got the to, other yeah. the other point that I would uh, want to say that I think is really pertinent is uh, whenever large industrial projects are proposed, there are environmental assessments done and there are compensations made for damages to varying resources. So what I cannot understand about the railways is if in the normal course of your operation, one of the results is wildlife mortality why that cannot be accounted for in some way, even if you put a small value on the number of wildlife um, that you know to be killed, never mind estimated or whatever, um, even small amounts of funding can accrue to some larger good. Um, and so I wasn't the first person to, I had not the first person to ask that question, but I, and I did bring it up um, in those reviews um, uh, for the Wildlife Act. Um, but I, there was a lot on the table. I, I imagine in that, uh, in those discussions. Yeah. We discussed it before in another podcast where, uh, a bunch of years ago, a guy on Facebook, uh, under a, an alternate name, fake account came to me because of my advocacy and my, to be blunt, uh, outreach and mm-hmm. candidness mm-hmm. when it came to wildlife management and said to me that, uh, he worked for CNN and, or CN, not a news reporter, <laughs> but, uh, he, uh, he was a, a, a supervisor in some capacity and he was outraged that they didn't have any mandatory reporting. And we, we got chatting and uh, he, he mentioned something like uh, 400 moose were killed in one winter between Jasper and Prince George. Mm-hmm. And it just goes hand in hand with what you're saying that why isn't there some sort of mandatory reporting? I know that the... The name of the working group out of Telqua and Smithers, um, they are still doing their work. They are still publishing reports. Those reports are available. I have one up to as recently as 2018, I think, with numbers. I just can't remember the numbers off the top of my head. So I know that there still is some reporting and some numbers. Uh, yes, there for is. For the, both the Upper Fraser uh, area and, and, the the, and the Telqua area. Yeah. I know one of the things that you had put in, in one of your recommendations for rail was uh, putting a fixed uh, a fixed camera system in uh, on, on long rail corridors in where you would have reported high-density collisions. I'd be interested to see if you had a, a continuous line of cameras from here right. to even go 70 kilometers east of here, how much wildlife would be um, killed just, just on a rail line. It, and just in 70 kilometers, I'd, I, I would be interested to see one year worth of footage to see what that looks like. Because I, even the amount of animals that use that is a, because wolves and stuff for sure, I've, you know, I've transected lots of uh, rail lines here oh, yeah. in the wintertime snowshoeing. And it's not just, it's everything that gets on there. And I would suggest that the mortality is, is a mixture of all kinds of things. I just don't know how often it's reported. So... Have we beat that? Have we beat that one to death? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I would say also that there are the uh, reporting requirements under the Wildlife Act, um, right? If if you kill an animal uh, under certain circumstances, I forget mm-hmm. Section ninety three or whatever it is, um, 
they are to be reported. So, right. but I, I don't know the specific legal situation um, with CN. The railways have been established a long time. They have some grandfather clauses, right? Yes. Some evergreening. Yes, yeah. and they I think do. I think that might be a part of it is that CN is been around they're a, almost a, a year, lot under a year themselves or two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and and that's exactly it that what other what other company has their own you know legal police, police force, force right like transit it's, it's yeah fair <laughs> enough but, um, <laughs> but yeah that they're 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 a monster right they've got rail well literally all the way across the country and, and mm-hmm. you're not allowed to cross it you're not allowed to walk on it you're not you know it's it's considered private property yeah. right so yeah i know there's even uh, just when we do uh rude capture and release on the indaco yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but i mean but, but there's i mean to get on their tracks you, you have to access it i mean there's, yeah. there's, yeah, lots there's, of, there's permissions required yeah there's lots of permission to interact with their rail lines so if if we were going to jump from rail and you did say planes, trains, and automobiles. Yes, we did. We could briefly talk about planes if you wanted. Yes, I, I'd actually... I, uh, Gail has... What a great segue. <laughs> what a great segue. I actually wrote down my, my plane tie-in you're, you're a plane. Oh, she okay. beat you to it. No, Gail's, Gail's new oh. on the podcast. She's going to be our new... See you later, Steve. Thanks I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's talk a little bit about to birds, plane strikes. Um, I, those are the... I would just, <laughs> The grills of uh, people's Colorados, things like that. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about bird mortality and some of those things. Well, now what you've just asked or what you've just stated maybe presumes that there are no mammals that are getting hit by planes. Okay, well that's interesting. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm perfect. So, so let's talk. A, let's talk about what what are planes hitting? Well, you are right that the majority of what planes are hitting are going to be birds. Right. There's no doubt about it. But we do have a few species that uh, are land based. Okay. Mammals that do create problems for planes, not only in British Columbia, but throughout Canada and throughout the United States. And, and in fact, wherever planes are and where there, wherever there are habitats that support the mammals that live in and around airports. And so Gail and I was just have just finished up a project with a couple of other folks that study airport or airplane wildlife interactions on coyotes. Oh, wow. And although coyotes aren't the ones that tend to create the most problems in terms of uh, aircraft animal strikes, other than birds, uh, deer are the ones that tend to do that more. We have more coyotes on, just talking in terms of local airports, the Prince George International Airport, we have far more coyotes because now they've got a really skookum fence around the entire property of the airport. So that's keeping deer out. It's mostly keeping the deer out. Now you'd be surprised. Maybe you guys wouldn't because maybe you're deer hunters. Deer can get under the smallest little holes underneath the fence that a bear has dug. It's incredible what deer can do. I have actually seen that. Yep. But uh, coyotes certainly crawl under the smallest little holes that you can imagine, and bears will go under and over a fence even if it's got razor wire on the top of it. But bears tend to be, like you were pointing out with them crossing roads, they tend to be pretty smart about staying off the runways. I've got a camera network that's been set up at YXS, so here at the Prince George Airport, since 2007. And in that time, we've never even had one collision with a bear we've had one incident where it was you know getting close to the runway but in terms of coyotes coyotes are all over that place and we've had several incidents with coyotes and deer um, tend to also although they like to hang out in the airport property because it's like a garden of eden because there's no moose eating yeah, browse, exactly, yeah. uh, it's a great place to hang out and there's not a lot of wolves there they tend to hang out around the perimeter of the fence they don't they're pretty smart about trying to cross in front of airplanes although that's our local deer because deer create problems for 
airplanes all over Canada and North America. As a matter of fact, I can think of one uh, uh, deer plane collision happened on the Queen Charlotte Islands. Um, it's the northern airport, and I think the runway um, almost goes right off into the water, if anybody's Ma- Masset? Masset, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it was, I believe it was that airport, and an air ambulance hit a deer. So, and it was a significant collision, um, stopped a plane, uh, big damage to the plane oh, wow. and the deer. And I can think of another local uh, Fort St. James uh, airport. Each 900? Uh, yeah, plane hit a moose. 2015, March of 2015. Yeah, it, so. was, it was landing and the moose came up out of the ditch and it hit the uh, moose and it knocked the motor. It took the prop right off. Wow. And it knocked the motor off the mounts, and it just splattered that moose all over the runway. And the, 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 the and the plane crashed after that. No, the plane actually it it was able to. Nobody got hurt. Wow. Uh, it was able to just come to a stop a hundred or two hundred meters after it hit the moose, but it the moose didn't survive. So, it. is your study designed to to develop um, more awareness for airport authorities, or to create new mitigation strategies like you, you've done with Roadworks? Well, it. It's a bunch of things. It's to bring awareness to the issue, but it's also to figure out what are the best ways to help predict what's going to happen in an airport. And with my camera network that's been set up there since 2007, we've got cameras all over the airport. But what we came to the conclusion about after doing this coyote paper was that you can have cameras set up along perimeter fences and you can have them in certain locations for monitoring what's out there. But if you want to target a specific critter, like if you wanted to really focus on coyotes because they're the one that tend to be the most dangerous and the one that's going to get into the most trouble with the planes, you need to be very specific about where you put those cameras for that particular species. And in the case of coyotes, like the signs we were talking about earlier, collision signs, they need to be moving all the time with coyotes. You'd need to move your sci- your cameras seasonally to figure out what trails are they using, what holes are they coming on. I mean, the obvious answer here is to just make sure that they can't get underneath the fence, right? which would require you to dig around the entire fence, put an apron under it, bury it. But that's, that's a lot of cost. It's yeah. like saying, well, you should just, you know, you might as well just get a bigger fence. Yeah. Yeah. yeah my, my plane story was, is kind of, I actually thought about it as we we're sitting here. I took Donnie's pen and wrote it down so I could add it in later, but they had <laughs> some, some plane related stuff. Great. 1992, I was in uh, air cadets and I was at Penholt. Okay. So yep. Donnie knows where that is yep. in Alberta. Yep. And uh, they, there was like leadership courses and there was a few uh, private pilot's license. And there was one guy, uh, he was a warrant officer at the time, so he was 16, 17 years old and he was a hotshot because he was there on uh, a scholarship for his, his pilot's license. So he did the three weeks course there and everybody went to the end of the runway and, and in the, uh, the, the breezeway there to, to watch him do his final solo circuit. So he takes off and he does uh, his uh, final, his base, his, and then comes on to final and he's landing. And as he stops, he's coming to a complete stop, and a deer runs out and bang right into the prop. So his one seventy two was uh, mangled pretty good. Didn't do, didn't write it off, but the deer was hamburger, and uh, he he had uh, what's the term egg all over his face, but it was more like deer innards. So he, he, he did pass his test, but it was the first time I'd ever seen or heard of a, a collision between a, a plane and I a, Honestly, and a un, until you guys brought it up, it, <laughs> outside of a bird, I have never even once, not once in my life, 
have I ever thought when the plane's coming in, yeah. you know, in Vancouver <laughs> or Prince George, I hope there's no coyotes down there. I hope we don't hit a deer. Yeah. Like I've got a whole new paranoia that's building yeah. up. I'm glad we're not flying. <laughs> oh, wait till we start talking about moose snowmobile strikes and moose boat strikes and moose bicycle strikes. <laughs> Those are all things? Those are all real things. I've even, got, I've even got pictures of them. Yeah, I know two people in Prince George that actually ran into a moose with their bicycle. And with their bike? I thought bicycle. you meant motors- no? bicycle? Well, motorcycles, that's far more common, but bicycles as well. We got to change the name of the episode. <laughs> Planes, trains, automobiles, snowmobiles, bikes. Boats. So that's, bikes. A, Boats. that's a thing? That's, that's a real mm-hmm. thing. It's, real it's, not thing. As, it's not as common, of course, as uh, moose vehicle collisions. And so with boats, is it is that just, you know, they're swimming across a river or something like that or a lake and they just, people aren't paying attention, think it's a log and... Or they're beaching on an island where a cow moose decides to have a calf because there's no, no grizzly way. bears there. And yeah, so all kinds of interesting things. Anyway, I don't want to just get too far off the topic with the moose. Oh, the things that you don't know. <laughs> the things you don't know. I was trying to envision. You can find anything on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Is there anything else? Uh, any other questions from any of my co-hosts anything else no i was wondering how we were going to get into the plane conversation but that was pretty cool that was good that <laughs> yeah, actually worked it. out really worked. well now we've added boats all right um so i uh, had a couple of final things i don't know if we're there yet so when we get there we, in, we're there we are we are there i was going to ask so like or what about what about uh, success stories yeah so what if, if we look at uh, the biggest success story where it's like we've got a problem we implemented and we saw actual curtailment let's hear it Give us one good news story. Well, we have a local success story, and I'll let I'll let Roy do it because it's really been his project from the get-go. Well, it's, it wouldn't have happened without Gail, and it wouldn't have happened without the Ministry of Transportation because they funded the entire thing. So this is uh, kind of fun because what happened was several years ago, we did a, a review of Moose Vehicle Collision Hotspots in the Peace, and we found that in the Peace... Moose vehicle collision hotspots could be described as places, not all of them, but as places that had these roadside mineral licks. And we always suspected that there was probably some link between collisions and, and roadside mineral licks. But after doing this investigation and running the stats, and, and we published a paper on it in 2014 if anybody's interested, there's a, uh, there's a clear link between roadside mineral licks and moose vehicle collision hotspots. So we brought that back to Prince George and said, hey, if it's happening there, it's likely happening here. For sure. Let's take a look at it. And we came, you know, to find out that, yes, same thing was happening here. And so now, okay, we've got this information. What are we going to do about it? What's going to happen to these roadside mineral licks? Are we going to be able to train moose to stay away from them? No. So we've got to do something about the actual lick. It's anthropogenic. It's something that we've created Let's get rid of it so we're not attracting moose into the travel corridor. So with the aid of many people at the Ministry of Transportation and Gail and many, many students that have worked on the project, we have gone around decommissioning many of these mineral licks and keeping many of them as controls to test whether or not covering them up with rock, fencing them, covering them up with cedar mulch, whatever we can do to keep moose from using them would work to reduce collisions. Now, one thing is for sure, we monitored these with cameras and we could tell immediately that in the first year after decommissioning, there was a drop in the number of animals that that went to the lick. Not by much though, so it was a little surprising. But in the years after that first year of decommissioning, the animals just almost completely quit going to these things. In the case of 
rock and using reject rock, it was about an 80% reduction in the three or four years after decommissioning. In the case of fencing, it was like a 92% reduction in visits. And in the case, we used a really fun one here. We actually, because one of my students was looking up, what are some things that we can use to deter moose from coming to an area? And one of the obvious things would be, well, maybe we could use wolf hair. Mm -hmm. And so we know that dogs are wolves. It's kind of hard to get hold of wolf hair, but we know that all dogs, all domestic dogs are wolves. So why not go to a grooming salon? get some dog hair and somebody else had posted something on the internet about human hair being a deterrent. So we thought, well, why don't we just go to people salons and we'll mix in human and dog hair. <laughs> so Gail and I and some students <laughs> went to one of these mineral licks. We rototilled in this mixture of human and dog wolf hair and lo and behold, these animals immediately in the days after They'd come, and we have this all on video camera, they'd come to the lick, the moose would sniff and look and sniff and look and then just turn and walk away. And, no and way. Another thing that we saw that we had never seen before is that the first time ever we had coyotes, fox, and wolf, all three coming to the lick, cocking their leg and peeing on it. <laughs> <laughs> but the But the magic was that it kept the moose away. The moose would come, they'd sniff, and they'd just leave. So, and then so, they stopped so, going. So does that need to be refreshed? Because with, with that scent, that scent will will degrade over time. So would you just have them go out and refresh that area annually with well, your, your salon? Now it's not very scientific. <laughs> it's not very scientific because it's a sample size of one. But what we found in this particular case was that it lasted long enough for the animals to stop visiting it and stop rototilling the soils with their hooves and that's what normally kept the soils exposed okay and so what happened is it started to vegetate in and it started to grow in and it just instantly instantly over three or four years didn't become a lick anymore it sort of naturally deactivated it, it just kind of veg it vegetated in and um and then, things as, and then as the mamas are not bringing their young that chain of learned behavior and learned right. association with that site also stopped yeah so, Holy cow. Yeah, so, it was so pretty cool. Do you want to hit the uh, hair salon and I'll hit the, the, the dog groomer and yeah. we can set a, a pile going for next year for wolves? Yeah, we'll do that. That's it. I like that idea. Yeah. <laughs> now, now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about, are there, so for final thoughts, I was going to say, what three things do you think are the most important that need to be done to reduce wildlife loss on BC highways? The things that you think they either need to do more of, they're not doing, or that they should be doing? Okay, well, I, I'll pick, and then, then Roy could pick. So I'll talk about drivers. So it's not just MOT's responsibility um, to stop wildlife collisions. It's everybody's responsibility to stop it. So uh, drivers have to drive wildlife aware. They have to think about what that means, um, anticipate areas that might where wildlife might be common, um, and uh, drive expecting to see wildlife on the roads because they're all over the place. Don't be surprised when you see one. Drive expecting to see it. So keep your awareness up. Okay. Keep your speed down. Uh, watch for the signs. So that's from the driver's point of view. Everybody has a responsibility for this. Yep. Fair ball. I dig it. Hey, and because we've got bigger brains than moose and deer and bear and elk, uh, Some of I, us. I, I yeah. would say, I would say <laughs> the same thing. It's, it's really not their responsibility to try and avoid a collision. They're just doing what they do. They're trying to survive. Right. And is it going to inconvenience us to pay a little more attention, maybe drive a little slower, especially at night? Just be aware of the fact, at least pay attention to road signs that have been installed in areas that are considered hot spots. 
you know, there's not a lot we're going to do with the animals. We can try and manage vegetation. We can try and, and that's one thing we didn't talk about, but managing roadside vegetation is another thing. Increasing sight lines so that people can see a little bit better, but managing it at the time of the year so that, as we talked about earlier, it doesn't grow up and become this real buffet of good things. Maybe try and manage it in a way that when it grows back, it's not as tasty, not as preferable right. to the animals. But um, there's all kinds of things you could do. Yeah, we could... We could put fences from here to McBride. Is that very sensible? Does it help wildlife? I would say it doesn't. I mean, at, uh, I don't know what it is nowadays. Maybe Gail knows $150,000, $200,000 a kilometer for fencing. And then any of these grade separations, whether it's over or underpasses, you're looking four, five, six million dollars. Like, are we going to do that between here and McBride? Right. I don't think we're going to do it. And I don't think it would do wildlife any good to do that. They need to move, be able to move back and forth across these roads to get to winter ranges, summer ranges breeding ranges, rut arenas, whatever, and they should be able to do that. And so I think it's, I think the onus is on the people to try and figure out, hey, maybe I should pay attention. Maybe I should slow down a bit. Maybe I should just appreciate the wildlife that's out here. And instead of just, you know, getting as fast as I can from point A to point B and not, not pay the attention that I should and, and give the respect I should to the animals. Is there, um, for, for not just for Spruce City, but for anybody who's listening that might be uh, in a wildlife club in another jurisdiction, um, are there any uh, research projects or anything like that that a group like ourselves could help participate in? If you're going to deactivate a mineral lick or anything like that, whether it's helping, you know, fundraise for cameras or I just think there's some interesting stuff in some of that. I don't think I want to do like boat moose collision prevention. I don't think that one's realistic. <laughs> what about airplane collisions? You seem <laughs> but, nervous. <laughs> but there, but I think there's some, there's some interesting work that's being done there. And I mean, it's definitely stuff that, you know, with volunteer organizations that, uh, you know, we're always looking for interesting projects to partner up on, even if it's just about awareness. So, you know, I think we actually touched on it earlier because you have a, a membership that knows how to necropsy animals. They know how to sex an animal. They know how to pull a tooth. And, and you would be able to, from carcasses that you are made aware of, whether that's through a connection with Spruce City Wildlife to Yellowhead Road and Bridge or whatever that may be, if you had volunteers that wanted to get us information about what is it that we're killing on the roads? It's one thing for the maintenance contractor to fill out a card and send it to MOT. But when I get the wars report and I look at the data, I don't have anything other than species and the location where it was killed. It may be on some paper form somewhere, whether it was a male or a female, if, if the person driving the maintenance rig was able to tell. Right. Uh, but you have a group of folks that know inside and out what a moose and a deer and an elk look like and how to tell the difference between different yeah. age classes. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to be sectioning the teeth and looking at the teeth, but you at least know how to pull the teeth and yeah. get them to somebody that can. And if we can find that information out, that would help us a lot. We don't know what we're killing. Is it mostly cows and calves? Is it mostly prime bulls? What is it? Is it all? Is it yearlings that don't know the difference because they're not road savvy yet? We just don't know. So I think that would be a good place for Spruce City. Yeah, I really like and, that idea. Yeah. yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Any final thoughts from either of you? Uh, I did have um, a couple of things that I wanted to mention. And one thing is around uh, the, res the, res the real responsibilities of drivers. And one of those real responsibilities is that uh, court cases have, here in northern BC, and in other jurisdictions, but there's one in northern BC uh, that happened between Dawson Creek and Fort St. John. Um, and the result was from the judge that drivers have a duty of care to other drivers. And so 
if you are unfortunate enough to be in a collision, um, you should not leave that collision scene if there are hazards on the road. So if you hit a deer and the deer is in the traveled lane of the road or somewhere where it's going to pose a hazard for another driver, you have a legal responsibility to stay at that accident, at that collision scene and warn other drivers, whether, whether it's a hazard lights of your own vehicle or waving a flashlight or any other way that you can do it until someone with the uh, authority to remove the animal comes along. Um, so that's an important point that people don't yep. know. People always yep, ask sure me, um, so I hit a deer and it's down there in the ditch and it's thrashing around. Do I have a responsibility to put it out of its misery? People ask me that one, <laughs> but they don't ask me, do I have a responsibility to stay at the scene because I left a deer on, on the traveled lanes? So yes, if you hit a deer and it's in the traveled lanes, you have a responsibility to stay there and notify other drivers of the hazards until someone else uh, with the authority to do so comes along. Do you um, have a responsibility to dispatch an injured animal? No, you don't. Um, you can if you have the skill set, but most people don't. I've read reports from ICBC um, as, as comic and as tragic as this sounds, where uh, a woman tried to dispatch a deer with her shoe because she was so upset at the right. distress the animal was in. Yep. So you don't have a responsibility to do that, and not many, aside from the guys here in this room and, and lots of your listeners, would have the appropriate skill set anyway. Right. So I wanted to say that. Um, and uh, I would guess I would put a plug in um, uh, from the organization who I retired from because Yay. I'm just doing <laughs> Happy this. Happy retirement. Thank Yay. you. I'm, I do all this stuff for fun now. <laughs> Um, is uh, BC Conservation Foundation's Wildlife Collision Prevention Program has a website and a, and a program, active program, wildlifecollisions.ca. Uh, lots of information on there about driving tips and information about wildlife collisions. So uh, I put a plug in for that. And also, um, for those of you who drive for work or you have family and friends who drive for work, there's a great nonprofit organization called uh, Road Safety at Work. And they're sponsored uh, in part by WorkSafe. And I did a great webinar with them on wildlife vehicle collisions last year. So uh, roadsafetyatwork.ca has excellent information um, for employers who are seeking to keep their employees safe uh, at work. Those are awesome. And on the road. Yeah, and I've actually been to both of those websites. I used uh, both of them a little bit in some of my prep and stuff. So, uh, well, thank you guys so much for spending uh, you. Uh, an evening here with us at the Hatchery. Uh, this was a way more robust conversation. I, I mean, I knew it was going to be interesting, but... Man, you guys got me with planes and coyotes and boats and holy cow. Bicycles. But I mean, I'm also, it was, um, it, it, I didn't want to visit this conversation out and to just, and talk about, you know, all the costs on vehicle collisions and all of that, that, that's secondary. This is a wildlife focused discussion and I kind of wanted to keep it in that wheelhouse. Yes. There's a cost if, for people listening. Yes. You know, there's people and there's, there's healthcare costs. Uh, there's collision costs and claim costs, et cetera. There's all of those things that happen, but this is uh, focused on wildlife. Uh, so hopefully what we've illustrated is that there is a significant loss of wildlife annually on uh, BC's highways and back roads, uh, and that is the, the same wildlife that those of you that are listening that we interact with as consumptive users on the land base. So some of that, uh, some of that wildlife that uh, we're hoping to hunt is ending, is ending up as a mortality on these roadways. So, uh, and there's 
There's far more of them, I think, being killed than we're giving them credit for with the underreporting. So if you are in a vehicle collision, uh, take the time, do your due diligence. Whether you whether you know that it got up and got away, report the report the collision if you can. If you can't report it because there's no damage to your vehicle, who should they report it to? If there is no damage and it got away, uh, is it worth mentioning to somebody? And who would we who who would we tell that to? Or should they just tell us and we'll figure it out? <laughs> just call Roy. Just call Roy. Yeah. You can certainly yeah. call me, and I've encouraged folks to do that. But I'm guessing the conservation officer service would like to know that. Yep. Now what that translates into in terms of reports or reporting requirements for them or how busy they are and what they can do about it. That, But I, I think it uh, I think it warrants a call to the Conservation Officer Service. Yeah, just to let them know that it happened. Okay. Does that sound fair, Gail? Oh, yeah, I would I would call the CO service, you know, call the RAP line. Okay, call yeah. the RAP line. Call the RAP line and, and call the maintenance contractor just to let them know. Right? Just to let them know. Yeah. And we will post who the maintenance contractor is up on the Spruce City Wildlife website and uh, maybe around some of the hotbeds around. I'm going to find some of those hotbed blooms from uh, Gail and Roy's research and uh, we'll figure out those, ba- those bad corridors. Uh, coming up, uh, our next episode, we will have President Chad Day of the Teltan. Uh, so Steve and I will sit down with him for a couple hours on Friday. You'll see that in a couple of weeks. Uh, so thank everybody for your time tonight. Thanks for listening, Matt, as usual. Thanks for hanging in there and producing and make us all sound brilliant. And, uh, but really big thanks to, to Gail and Roy for spending some time with us and, uh, what a great conversation. I learned a lot. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. Thanks guys. All right. That's it from the, uh, hatchery on river road. Thanks for listening to the cut banks conversations. Cheers. Bye-bye.